This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer of the Baptist system. Bill Cloud, chief medical officer at Baptist Memphis and uh, a previous general surgeon. Well, today we are so excited. We have Dr. Rusty Holman, which is the founder of 1821 Health with us. Rusty, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and about 1821 Health. Thanks, Skip. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, My background is I trained as a general internist and always had a mindset that I wanted to be a doctor's doctor, Uh, wanted to be someone that other doctors felt comfortable going to for healthcare. And along the way, focused my practice on hospital medicine. So I became a hospitalist, in fact, before the term had even been coined and spent uh, about 10 years of the first portion of my career at an organization called Health Partners uh, in Minnesota, and then moved on to a national hospitalist company for about eight years and served as chief clinical officer and chief operating officer. And then most recently was chief medical officer of LifePoint Health, which is a company that owned and operated about 90 hospitals in 30 states and was chief medical officer of that system. And I left about a couple of years ago to start this company, 1821 Health, that is focused exclusively on leadership development. I saw that as the biggest contribution that I could make to healthcare moving forward. And one of the greatest needs that I saw in healthcare today and and ongoing. So that's where uh, that's where I've landed today. Well, Rusty, once again, thank you very much for being here. And uh, we always love it when we have other physicians on the uh, on the podcast. And you know, I, I've I've looked at your website and uh, you know listened to a couple of your introductions on the website and. You know, you talk about healthcare being one of the most complex industries out there, and that the I don't want to say the typical, but the 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 usual leadership techniques that are used in other industries sometimes just don't work in healthcare. T- tell us a little bit about that, and and obviously, you know, when when you started 1821 Health, you you saw there was a gap. There was there was a need, as you said, and, and talk to us about that need that you that you saw. And thanks. The the need really gave rise to the company. And I saw this need even in my residency training, but early in my career as a staff physician. And that was what was lacking was not medical knowledge or clinical acumen of the professionals working together. Um, the nurses, the physicians, others, um, all working to to try and improve care of each individual patient. But what was lacking was the ability for those various individuals and various professions to be able to work together collaboratively, to be able to uh, communicate effectively with one another, to be able to compromise and to build teams in order to serve patients. And I saw the 
the site moving away from the end of the the patient in the bed towards all of the conflict and all of the complexity that surrounded us and so my effort now is to try and bring back a focus on how we as people interact with one another in order to achieve common goals. Um, and that's amidst, as you said, incredible complexity. And I wish I were the one smart enough to have said this. I believe Peter Drucker, who many of us know as the grandfather of modern business thinking, but Peter Drucker said something along the lines of, the hospital is the most complicated organism in all of business. And I think we all know that that's true. Um, so leading in a complex environment that has so many external and internal pressures driving us in different directions, while we're trying to perform a very specific function, and that is serving our patients and our community. And it's really navigating that complexity and having a skill set to be able to navigate ongoing complexity, to be able to navigate the next crisis, which is just around the corner. We talk about the pandemic that threw everything into a tailspin, but really what it did was amplify the existing complexities and issues that we were facing already. And for healthcare professionals of all types, healthcare workers of all types, it requires a skill set in leadership that we are not engendering, we're not teaching, we are not cultivating. And, and so we're feeling ourselves slip further and further away from what it is that we really want to achieve. That's really, that's really good. And, and one thing that you also talked about, or, or that 1821 Health is about is, when we think about leadership development, whether it's in healthcare or any industry, we're usually focused on the C-suite. <laughs> but, but, but you talk about leadership development throughout the entire organization from the top all the way down to the, uh, to the frontline worker. Why, elaborate on that for us a little bit. Yes, yes. Uh, thanks for that. The, the company, 1821 Health, and, and by the way, let me just share the background of the name. Yeah, that, I was going to ask you, what, what's, <laughs> tell us about the name. Yeah, um, that may help clear a couple things up. Uh, I wanted the name of the company to reflect leadership, the notion of leadership in some fashion. And it turns out that the year 1821 is the year the word leadership first entered the dictionary. So the Oxford English Dictionary <laughs> picked it up in 1821. Uh, Webster's happened to pick it up in 28. But coincidentally, I founded the company last year in 2021. So it was the 200th year anniversary of the word leadership. And it struck me that that is a nod to the past because leadership characteristics that were important 200 years ago are still largely relevant today. Things like integrity and having a, an inspiring vision and things of that nature. But how we develop leaders and what our idea of a leader is in an organization needs to change dramatically. So the idea was a nod to the past with an eye to the future. And I founded the company based on three premises. And they're fairly simple, but and they're interdependent, but um, 
they're not, uh, I don't think they're universally held truths. Um, the first premise is my belief is that everyone in healthcare is a leader, regardless of your title, regardless of your rank or position within the organization, your background, your training, everyone is a leader in their own right. So whether you are a physician leading a team, whether you are a nurse at the bedside, whether you're at the registration desk who's meeting a nervous family and patient for the first time and is often the face of an organization, uh, whether you're housekeeping, um, whose primary <laughs> responsibility is largely patient safety um, through infection control and, and a variety of other means, regardless of your background, you're a leader. And so if we believe that premise that everyone in their own right is a leader, then we need to start treating people that way. It's not enough to stand up in front of an audience and say, all of you are leaders. You are now empowered to do X, Y, and Z. Um, it's a nice notion. It's a noble notion to say that. But unless it's backed up by concrete action, it often is frustrating for the individual listening to the message. So by treating people that way, my intent is to make leadership development inclusive to everyone. Historically, leadership development has been exclusive to those with a certain title and a certain rank. And so by making leadership development inclusive to the organization, it is the ultimate sign of inclusion initiatives within a healthcare system. Inclusion means that everyone here is valued and respected for who they are and that everyone's contributions are necessary for the organization to be successful. So why not invest in building foundational leadership skills in everyone? And so the third premise is we're, if we're going to do that and we're going to build leadership skills, then we need to do it according to the science of adult learning. We need to do it through evidence-based learning as opposed to the anecdotal mechanisms that we've been using for as long as I can remember. And believe me, I am as guilty as anyone in the past of having used older traditional techniques of, quote, developing people um, that have very mixed results, are very expensive, very time consuming, and have been exclusive. So we need to modernize our ways of developing people following the science of adult learning that is out there. We talk about evidence-based medicine. We need to be talking about evidence-based learning. Rusty, I know you and I have had a number of discussions about um, <clears throat> in the healthcare professions, how people are taught. And, uh, you know, it's sort of an apprenticeship model where, you know, see one, do one, teach one. Um, what are your thoughts about the um, what you've encountered uh, within the healthcare organizations that you've dealt with um, when when you um, when you try to make the case that there is such a thing as evidence based learning? So uh, my observations and and what I have done in building leadership development programs myself in the past is oftentimes involving putting people in a conference room for eight hours at a time and having various faculty come and teach things like effective communication 
and conflict resolution and strategic planning and a variety of other topics, which all sound good. However, we know that the adult attention span is about 20 minutes on a good day. That's proven. So why are we putting people, why are we torturing people uh, for eight hours at a time in a conference room? It doesn't make any sense. And the retention rates from having done so are so poor. And the cost of having people in the room and having faculty, uh, it not only takes them out of their typical work day, um, but it also sends a message to the rest of the organization these are the chosen few who we think are important and that we're going to invest in and develop. And the rest of you get your work done. So it creates an organizational dynamic that is unintentionally negative. Um, and so there are so many things about that that can be corrected. Um, and the attention span is only one aspect of evidence-based learning that we can grab onto and embrace as a new methodology for developing people. Another good one, uh, Bill, is timing. Leadership development courses and conferences are held at the convenience of the teacher. It's when the faculty want to schedule it. So we're going to have the lead, next leadership development course in the middle of October. Okay, but I, as a nurse manager, I need that stuff now. So am I just waiting until October? And maybe I go to that leadership development course and it's excellent. I learn all kinds of things, but I don't have an occasion to use it until the following March. So what do I do then? I rush back to my office. I try and dig up the binder that I brought back from the conference, flip through, see if I made any notes and remember what was said. So it is not learner centric. And that's exactly what evidence-based learning needs to be. It needs to be learner centric. It needs to be in real time, in real scenarios and accessible so that someone doesn't have to make major interruptions to their workday or work week in order to begin to acquire those skills. So and there's a, a long list of other facets of evidence based learning um, that um, that in many ways make too much sense. And it makes us scratch our heads. Why are we not doing this? So why are we not? Why are go, we go not ahead. Go it? ahead, Bill. <clears throat> go ahead, Bill. Yeah. So why are we not doing it, Rusty? Well, um, I am I am part of the system that has bred all of this. So I will just call the baby ugly and say that we have been we have been steeped in tradition. And we often learn how to do things based on how our predecessors did them and then emulate those and maybe make small improvements over time. Maybe we bring our own ideas, we bring our own experiences, but largely we are following in a pattern of our predecessors. And a great example of that is how to run a good meeting. How many of us have been formally trained in how to run a great meeting? And yet, how many meetings do we conduct on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis? How many person hours are involved in meetings, and how effective are they? 
and none of us have been trained. However, we run meetings according to others that we've seen, and we think, oh, that's that's an interesting tip, or oh, they did something interesting in that meeting. That seems to make sense. I'll do it that way. And so it is uh, using a, a cliche term, the blind leading the blind. Um, so we tend to do things based on tradition, not because it's the best way of doing something. Absolutely. Bill, how many how many meetings did you say you had last Tuesday scheduled at seven o'clock? <clears throat> yeah, so I think I, you had I, I, I think you showed me your calendar. You had four scheduled. Or no, something I had like six. That. I had six. Oh, wait, no, no, that's right. It was six. Time. Yeah. 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 I told well, my wife that I said, you wouldn't believe how many meetings Bill Cloud has next Tuesday at six <laughs> at seven o'clock. Bill, congratulations. It just means you're a wanted man. Well, Rusty, I, I wanted to. <laughs> to talk to you about something and this, you know, this, this podcast is, it's not only for physicians, but we do try to gear it toward physicians. And, and I'll, I'll make a confession that, you know, as a surgeon, you know, not only are we expected to be a leader, but, but we're actually the ones doing the work. And, and that, that has been in, in my in my journey into leadership, that has been very difficult for me to be able to separate myself away from the work and, and try to lead and develop those people, those people underneath us. And 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 I don't know if if Bill feels the same way, but I think a lot of physicians feel that way because you know we're we're actually the ones who are having to to do the the actual. I don't want to say do all the work, but but. You know, we're we're totally responsible for for getting the job done. Yes. Um, and you're absolutely right. And what some people may describe that scenario as is a player coach type of role. OK, where, yeah, where you, are, <clears throat> where you are both responsible for developing others or shepherding others into their roles. Um whether it's clinical or whether it's managerial or what have you, but also participating in the actual clinical work itself. And in that regard, oftentimes nurses are in exactly the same position as physicians, as are pharmacists and all uh, walks of of clinical personnel. And it it does pose a real challenge. Um, What I find to be most effective in those situations is to have a common group vision about what the leader is and what leadership is over that group, over that department, organization, that team, and to have a common, to hold a a common view, that the leader is participating in both dimensions. However, that leader is also designated to make decisions on our behalf. Uh, that leader is is positioned to seek input, uh, but ultimately many things are going to come down to that leader making informed judgments, um, not only on behalf of clinical care, but on behalf of how we operate, what our financial dynamics look like, uh, what our relationship is with the rest of the organization. Um, and so it really takes being transparent and having some open and candid conversation about roles mm-hmm. and about what the role of leadership actually is. And I find that the more 
inclusive and the more involved a team can be in terms of leadership activities and leadership responsibilities, you move from people buying into that notion, you know, convincing them that that's an okay way to go. You move from buy-in to ownership. If you feel like your opinion is being sought, that your perspective is being valued, um, then you you migrate into something that is more like ownership. And and the analogy I'll use is is renting a car. Uh, in the history of the world, no one ever washed a rented car. <laughs> so it, it is um, it is that kind of approach that I think is is effective, and I find is better than someone taking on a role and assuming those responsibilities without having those candid conversations. Rusty, I'm, I'm curious. You, you talked earlier about <clears throat> the methodology uh, that's evidence based that you use. What about the content? What skills do leaders need to learn? There is there is a broad array, Bill, and many of them tend to be organizational, organizationally specific. Um, however, there are some that have broad, uh, broad applicability and broad um, uh, importance. So the two of the most important that also are the two that I see rarely, if ever, taught in an instructional fashion and building skills is about how to build respect. How do you build respect in an organization? Um, I know that in my training, I was actually, tr I learned respect through interprofessional disrespect. I'm an internist um, and growing up within residency, uh, the surgeons and, and the internists all had their rivalries, and it seemed fun at the time. But over the course of time, that gets ingrained culturally. Yes, it does. As soft versions of disrespect. Um, and the same goes with nursing. The same goes with administration. We begin speaking different languages. We believe that we have different perspectives. We communicate differently. And to me, respect means that you are building a relationship by seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And there is very little that I have seen in terms of organizations embracing that and actually teaching people how to do that. And yet, respect is the number one thing that people look for in the workplace, from their peers, from their superiors, and that's regardless of industry, healthcare uh, included. So, Building respect, building trust. How do we build trust amongst each other? How do we build, rebuild, frankly, trust with our patients and our community? Um, another is how to change culture, how to shape culture. Um, another is conflict resolution. I mentioned how to run a meeting, um, effective communication. And here's a biggie. How do you effectively lead change in an organization? Um, so there are a variety of topics like that that are absolutely essential. And again, when you think about them, these are not only important for people with specific titles and positions to possess, but imagine what it would look like if all the people they were responsible for had foundational knowledge and skill in what it means to be part of a change effort, what it means to be part of shaping culture. 
how to resolve conflict, how to give and receive difficult feedback. So it is a force multiplier when you have everyone having this this foundation. And it is not easy and it takes time, but it can be done. You know, I th- I th- you, you talk about respect and, and, and that's so important. And I think a lot of times we have the wrong idea about respect. We, th- we th- you know, sometimes we think it's just too touchy feely or too kind of kumbaya like. But, you know, I think about I think about we talk about Toyota a lot on this podcast. And, you know, their two pillars are respect for people and continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I don't think of. You know, I never think of the Japanese as is really touchy feely type people, but but they, you know, respect is paramount in their organization. So I so I think we, you know, you can still respect each other and disagree. You can still respect each other and and I don't want to say argue, but you know what I mean. You can rumble with people and and still walk away uh, having great respect for one another. HF, you are absolutely right. Respecting someone is not at all the same as agreement. Um, it is the ability to listen and be curious about another human being's way of seeing the world. Um, and it is through that curiosity and through internalizing it and more fully understanding it that we not only grow as people, but we grow as organizations because the best ideas don't come from a single individual. They come from a melding and a, a mixture of a variety, a broad diversity of, of points of view. And I would, I would go so far as to say that those two principles that Toyota promotes, and I wholeheartedly embrace those, respect often feels touchy-feely to people because it is not accompanied by tangible, concrete actions and behaviors that demonstrate and display how respect looks in human interactions. It often is some vague notion of, well, we're polite to people, or we are, um, we're congenial, or we don't, things that we don't do. We don't hang up the phone on people. We don't use profanity. Um, and all of those are, are <laughs> basics of, of human interaction, but they don't necessarily reflect what respect truly means. And so these notions like building trust, building respect, have to be accompanied by concrete behaviors that are defined and codified and then built uh, and developed according to those concrete behaviors. So, Rusty, you know, you and um, and a, a friend of ours, John Andrzejewski and Mary Al Scott, have written about an anthropological approach to culture. Um, what do you see as the end result culture being created by treating uh, each individual as a leader? Uh, great question. I, it's a little pie in the sky, but unless we have a vision of where we want to go, as aspirational as it is, we, we won't make any progress there. So the vision that I have of an organization embracing the notion that everyone here is a leader and we're going to start treating you that way 
is to become, number one, an inclusive organization. There is no greater demonstration of inclusion than to say everyone here has leadership contributions to make to this organization. Uh, number two, it creates a culture of learning. Um, not only that we as individuals are constantly striving, striving to improve ourselves, but we are working together to learn as an organization and to be smarter than we were last year and knowing that we're not nearly as smart as we're going to be next year. Um, but what it does is it also facilitates this capturing and harnessing of everyone's creativity and input in the organization in a way that we otherwise would not have had. Um, and I and I think, frankly, we're we're doing a huge disservice to leaders today, those that have a formal title and a position, because we are putting so much on their shoulders, and we are putting so much pressure. Um, and imagine what it would feel like to have your entire team or your entire area of responsibility coming alongside you and saying, you know what, um, we're going to contribute to the way that this complex problem can be solved. Um, and we now have the abilities to be able to contribute in a meaningful way because we're, we're now trained and we now have some foundation of skill that we never had before. I never had any formal training in how to communicate effectively or how to be part of a change effort. Now that I know that, I can, I can as, a, as a citizen of this organization, I can be part of your leadership activities and take some of that pressure off. Um, so it's, um, it is a force multiplier. So I would say, Bill, that really it's it's a culture of it's a culture of inclusion and leads to a culture of that continuous improvement that uh, that Toyota embraces. And um, and I and I love the fact that your health system has done the same. Well, Dr. Holman, this has been really, really good as we come to the end. You know, it makes me think uh, I could go in a lot of different directions, but. It made me think as we talk about this incredibly complex socio-technical system that we happen to call healthcare, that uh, it makes me remember of something that Dr. Edgar Schein, the, the person that coined the word organizational culture, told me. He said, Skip, many times we get content seduced with the technical and we give lip service to the social. That's, that's pretty profound because if we're really living in an open socio-technical system and we're only getting seduced with the technical and giving lip service to the social, then we're making this thing really hard. And so I think uh, what you're saying about leadership and uh, the, the need for the skills and training, uh, I think is just really, really important. I think the work that you're doing at 1821 health is so important. And so, Dr. Holman, you know, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much for your time. But even more important, I think, thank you for the great work that you're doing at 1821 Health. And I hope that you'll consider coming back on the podcast again in the future, my friend. I would love to. I would love to. I, we've got, uh, we've covered some great ground and there's so much more road to hoe together. So I appreciate your inviting me and it's really been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Rusty.
Thank you, Rusty.